Philippians chapter number 1. Yeah, uh, we'll go ahead and kids can go ahead and be dismissed. Uh, We will have e-kids this morning, so our kids can be dismissed. The rest of us, if you have a Bible or an app, Philippians chapter number one. So this morning I want to begin with a question, and it's it's a superficial question, but I want to know, do you have a favorite brand? Is there something, that, a brand of clothing, maybe it's a brand of car, whatever object it might be, but do you have a, a favorite brand, a brand that you really cherish? For me, as a, as a young kid growing up, some of you may remember this in the 90s, there was a brand called No Fear, and uh, it was huge, and it was uh, very popular. Everybody in school, anybody that was cool was wearing No Fear clothes, and my parents even had a red Camaro SS that had the No Fear logo on the back. It was uh, absolutely my dream car. Uh, my mom and dad bought it when I was about 12 years old, and they sold it promptly after I got my permit at 15. <laughs> and, uh, and I always wanted to drive that car, but I uh, never got the chance. But I loved uh, No Fear. No Fear, uh, you can, if you remember back, it was uh, the picture of this, this man, and he had kind of a furrowed brow, and, um, and he had kind of the, the angry look and kind of a, a cross mouth. And, and so kids were wearing it all the time then. And my mom bought me a, a No Fear shirt from JCPenney's. It was uh, back when people went to JCPenney's. And, uh, and the shirt said this. It said, it's mind over matter, and I don't mind because you don't matter. <laughs> As much as I like to wear no fear clothing, um, I did not at all represent, represent the brand well. Um, in fact, I'm afraid of just about everything that you can be afraid of. Uh, I've never seen The Wizard of Oz because I'm afraid of the cowardly lion. And so if there's something that I could be afraid of, then I am. And so I wore no fear clothing, and one of the things that I was mostly afraid of is my peers' thoughts and feelings and attitudes towards me. I always cared deeply what they thought, and I think that my mom bought me that shirt hoping that maybe the words on the back would somehow get into my heart, that I would no longer care what people thought about me, that I would not give any attention to how they viewed me or or maybe their attitude towards me. So it's mind over matter, and I don't mind because you don't matter. And this morning, as we look at the book of Philippians and continue our study, Tenacious Together, uh, we're going to look at what mattered to the greatest apostle that ever lived, the greatest church planner, the man who single-handedly created the greatest movement that the world has ever known, the Apostle Paul. And so before we do, we're going to go ahead and go to prayer, and we're going to see what matters to the Apostle Paul this morning. God, we thank you for those who have come out this morning and those who are joining us online through Facebook. God, we thank you for technology that allows your word to go out. And so uh, we're just so glad uh, for your son, Jesus, uh, that he has brought us together in his sovereignty, uh, that he has saved us from our sin, that we are being saved from the power of sin. And God, we look forward to the day when every sickness and every trial, every tribulation and every pestilence is wiped away, eradicated from this earth. God, what a glorious hope that is. And it's a hope that we gather together today under under the shadow of you, Almighty God, knowing that you are in control of all things and that all things are meant for our good and for the spread of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if maybe that's you this morning. Do you care what people think about you? Does it matter greatly how maybe your wife views you or your boss or your kids or your students? Maybe how your peers view you and their attitudes towards you. 
Well, in the book of Philippians, in chapter number 1 and verse number 12, we're going to go ahead and read it together. He says this, the Apostle Paul to the church there at Philippi, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so last week we saw that the Apostle Paul writing back to this church at Philippi, it's a missionary letter and he wants to update them of his condition. Uh, The church there at Philippi recognized early on that the Apostle Paul was in chains being imprisoned there in Rome and they dispatched their brother Epaphroditus with a goodie basket to take care of the Apostle Paul's needs. And as Epaphroditus got to Rome, no doubt he saw the conditions that the Apostle Paul was in, that he was locked up 24-7, chained to a member of the Imperial Guard, with no way, at least in the eyes of Epaphroditus, to be out and about spreading the good news of the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul pens a letter to the church there at Philippi, hoping to get it back to the Philippians before Epaphroditus reaches them, so that he can help them see this situation through, the eye, through his eyes and through the eyes of God. And so he writes this update, an update which occurs, uh, occurs earlier than any of his other updates and is longer in length than any of his other updates, letting them know that the things that have really happened have, have happened to what? To, to serve, the, to advance the gospel. That him being in chains was not something to be feared or to be dreaded or to be discouraged about, but it was in fact the sovereignty of God at work to ensure that this gospel of his, the gospel of Jesus, was to advance And so we saw last week, the first way that it advanced is verse number 13, that it became known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that his imprisonment is for Christ. And so this is the outwardly way that the gospel had advanced through the chains of Paul. It advanced so much so that there in Caesar's household, people were coming to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that was an extraordinary thing. We said last week that this was almost the climax of the book. That is, the Philippians are worried about the Apostle Paul and his state and being in chains. That the Apostle Paul writes back and says, I want you to know that the things that have happened have actually happened to serve to advance the gospel so much so that in chapter number four and verse number 22, he reveals the big surprise that the saints in Caesar's household salute you. And so the things that have happened to him actually serve to advance the gospel. And so we see the outward work of the gospel in that it is changing these unbelievers, those in Caesar's household, those who are the imperial guard and all the rest, even those who are maybe there in servants or cooks and chefs and housemaids. All of them had an opportunity to hear the gospel. But today we want to focus on the second thing that happened that advanced the gospel, and that's this. And this is an inwardly thing that happened. It happened not to those outside of the church, but to those within it. And we see it in verse number 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so... 
Paul, being in prison, not only brought the gospel to those in Caesar's household, but it stirred up the gospel in the hearts of those who are already believers. We see this because he says most of the brothers, and anytime that the apostle Paul calls somebody a brother, it's a brother in Christ. In fact, some of you uh, probably are looking at a King James version or another version of the Bible, and you'll see that it actually takes that prepositional phrase in the Lord, and it probably joins it to brothers. So your translation might have brothers in the Lord. The ESV that I'm reading from says that they are confident in the Lord. And the reason that in the Lord is kind of in the middle, so it could go to either one. The reason that uh, the ESV translates in the Lord, not with the brothers, but with being confident, is because it's assumed that the brothers would be in the Lord. Because anytime the Apostle Paul uses that language, brother, sister, he's using it as somebody in Christ. And so to say brothers in the Lord would be incredibly redundant for the Apostle Paul. And so we see that it's probably confident in the Lord, but nonetheless, it's brothers that he has in mind. It's this outward working of the gospel, not only in those who don't know Jesus, but also in those who do. And so the gospel we see is not something just for those outside of the church, but it's for us as well here in the church. This week I met with the teachers as, as we do on Tuesdays and Thursdays for a time of devotion. And in our Christian school, we oftentimes have this argument inwardly among ourselves. Is the Christian school exist for evangelism, to reach the lost, or does the Christian school exist in order to disciple? And I would say that it really doesn't matter because the 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 the, the uh this is the word I'm looking for. Uh, it doesn't change our response or our methods in any way. Because if the mission of the Christian school is evangelism, then what we need is to proclaim the gospel. And if the mission of the Christian school is discipleship, then what we need is to proclaim the gospel. Because as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul's confidence was this gospel would turn out for his deliverance. And so deliverance from the power of sin, if you're an unbeliever, under the condemnation and the weight of sin, that you could be delivered from the the future prospect of hell. But then for those of us who do believe that the power of the gospel is freeing us, it's sanctifying us, it's delivering us every day from the presence and power of sin. And then one day we look forward to when Jesus, in all of his glory, will do away completely with sin. And uh, that'll be the gospel and its glorification in our lives. And so it doesn't matter so much if our mission is evangelism or discipleship. What we ought to be doing is gospelizing. We ought to take the gospel to every creature. Whether they're saved, there are certainly ramifications for those who are in Christ, but then also for those of us who are in Christ. And so the gospel, as it goes forth, It has a work that is being done there in the brothers. And I love the word that the Apostle Paul chooses. He says most of the brothers, not many of the brothers, but most of them, meaning that it was the rarity, it was an exception for the brothers to not be more bold as a result of this gospel. And so Paul being imprisoned in Christ is working two things. It's working the salvation of those in Caesar's household, and it's working the sanctification of those within the church. And what is it that's happening to those in the church? Verse number 14 says that they're becoming more confident in the Lord by their imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word with fear. The Apostle Paul kind of layers adjective after adjective and descriptor after descriptor of what it means to be more courageous, to be more inspired, to be more bold in our presentation and in our speaking the word. 
And so we see that they are much more, more and more, exceedingly more. So again, that hyperbolic language that the Apostle Paul loves to use that we've seen time and time again in this book so far, where he is just taking it to the next degree. He's saying these, this church, these brothers, were already confident in the Lord. They already believed in the Lord and trusted in him for salvation. It wasn't that they were cut off from Christ. It wasn't that the Apostle Paul's imprisonment brought them to a saving knowledge of Christ. No, it was that it inspired them, that their boldness and their courage, uh, that it be- they became more confident to the point that they spoke the word without fear. And that ought to be our prayer this morning for our church, that we would be emboldened. There's not a doubt that we're brothers. There's not a doubt that you have confidence in the Lord. But there's an opportunity here by the preaching of the gospel. Every time we assemble together, every time that we speak to each other or sing hymns or spiritual songs, there's a chance for us to become much more emboldened. That we would abound more and more in our confidence in the Lord. And that confidence would lead us to speak the word without fear. What we see here is the birth of the evangelism in the church, birth of evangelism, that these these, uh, believers were becoming more and more evangelistic, having gone through the trials themselves and having seen the Apostle Paul's response to the trial. I've noticed in my own life that most of the times when I'm able to speak of the Lord, it usually is surrounded by a trial. Just this week, I had a friend that I'd met uh, through a Leadership Harrison program, um, and we've uh, had a couple times, uh, um, one, once each month over the past couple months, to, to get to know each other. He stopped by the clinic to see um, what we were all about and to, to take a tour. And as we concluded the tour there in my office, um, we started to talk about some deeper things. And that's kind of the progression of a relationship, right? You have, you have kind of drive-through talking, and then you reveal some facts, and then you kind of get to the heart. And in that moment, the heart just kind of came up. And I was talking to him about how we were uh, a pastor, or I was a pastor, and he was talking to me about his church attendance there at Horizons. And then he started to share some fears and some struggles that he had. And in that moment, I was able to share, likewise, some of the struggles that I had had and what the Lord had brought me through. And at the end of that, what we had done was we essentially shared the gospel and encouraged one another to trust Jesus, not only in our salvation, but in our day-to-day sanctification within our lives. And so there's a sense in which we need a trial in order to become the evangelist that God would have us to be. And so when we look around at the coronavirus, what an opportunity Because we have people all over our community who are asking themselves in this dark time, you know, what is life? And life seems to be very fragile, and it's it's short, and it's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. And people start to think about this trial that they found themselves in. They begin to think about their families and loved ones and the people they care about. And what an opportunity for us to share our trials with, with the world. And how God has delivered us from these things. And how our confidence is even if he doesn't deliver us from coronavirus. Even if, it, even if all of us succumb to it. That we shall, like the Apostle Paul, be delivered someday. Either I will be delivered or I will be delivered in this life or the next. And so evangelism is oftentimes spurred through our trials. And being able to share those trials with other people around us who are going through the same trials. To be human is to suffer. And we have a reason to hope in the midst of that suffering. 
But the other thing that we see here that, that's kind of interesting that really appeals to our church is we see the emergence of the B team, right? You guys are familiar with the B team? Uh, when I came and candidated, one of the things I heard about was the B team. And, uh, and what had happened was over these past couple eight months with being without a pastor and other leadership, you all stepped up. And uh, we had the emergence of the B team here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And there was a lot of, lot of pride. Maybe pride isn't the right word, but there was a, a lot of hope that, that was born in that time as people who maybe had never stepped up before began stepping up and taking on roles that they had never taken on before. We had people reading scripture who had never read scripture before, people praying, people uh, stepping up and leading, people teaching and preaching. And it was an amazing thing to see that is there was no A team, that this B team emerges and, and they take the reins and they ensure that the gospel goes forward. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. The Apostle Paul is locked up. A-team is in prison. He is not free to roam about the country. He is not planning churches. He is there chained to a member of the Imperial Guard day in and day out. And so the B-team says, hey, it's our time to shine. Like it's time. The gospel has to go on. The show goes on. And so we're going to step up and make sure that the gospel is proclaimed. And what an awesome thing to see this BT and these brothers. It wasn't that they didn't already believe. It wasn't that they weren't already confident in the Lord. But the A team had been removed and now it was their time. And so I want us to see just how important it is to have a deep bench in the Christian church. You know, it's one of the reasons why we believe in plurality is so that there will be times, undoubtedly, where maybe I fall down with the coronavirus and Reese steps up. Uh, maybe Reese falls down with the coronavirus and then Dick has to step up. But there's got to be a B team that's able to step up when the A team is in chains so that the gospel can go forward. And so as Baptists, we believe that every single person uh, has the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells in them and enables them and that they are as much equipped for ministry as any professional preacher is. And so this B team takes up the reins. The Apostle Paul is in prison and they step up and they become bold to speak the word without fear. The second thing I want us to see is the motives of the B team. So Paul says in chapter number one, verse number 15, some indeed, some of the who, some of the B team, some of these believers who are now more bold to speak the gospel, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So the Apostle Paul says that there were motives on display here, that these folks who are stepping up in courage and boldness and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, some of them had ulterior motives. And the way that he does this comparison, the literary style, is he does an ABBA comparison. And it's really neat to see. So there are two groups of people that he's looking at here. The first one are those who are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, not out of sincerity. So this is this is the A's. And so envy and rivalry. And then the bees are the latter who do it out of love. And then he's going to come back and say something else about the bees. He's going to say that they they are uh, doing it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then he's going to go back to the A's. And so we have this A-B-B-A presentation. But I want you to see the contrast here in 15 through 18, because it's really important. So he says that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. 
And this is uh, something that was not strange to the church there at Rome. It was something that was going on. Clement, the early church father, commented on this, that the church at Rome had a real skepticism and almost a, a dislike for apostolic authority. And uh, I don't know why that is. We could speculate that maybe being there under the shadow of Caesar and under maybe the oppression of Caesar and seeing what authority could lead to, right? Caesar not only was the authority in Rome at the time, but wanted to be worshipped as God, that sometimes that pendulum swings a little too far, right? And so in swinging too far, they rejected not only Caesar and Caesar worship, but maybe they rejected authority altogether. And so they had a real healthy distaste for authority. It could have been that the church at Rome really was a B-team church. So I don't know that uh, we know that, but the, the history and the context there of the church at Rome was that it was not founded by an apostle. That it was one of the few churches there in the Western world that the apostle Paul did not plant himself. In fact, in Romans, he talks about wanting to go to an existing church in order to impart a blessing that they might be mutually encouraged. But the church itself was a church of B-team, comprised of B-team folks. It was not started by the A-team apostles. And so there could have been just kind of a healthy skepticism, or there could have been a self-sufficiency that said, we don't need the stinking A-team, right? Like, we don't need them to come and tell us how to do things. We're, we're doing things fine the way that we are. We don't need the Apostle Paul to come with his horse and pony show and tell us how things should be done. And so it's, it could be that these folks who are emboldened in Rome because of the Apostle Paul's imprisonment, who are emboldened to speak the word without fear, but do so out of envy and rivalry, it could be because the whole church, like the church at Corinth, struggled with this envy and rivalry among themselves. But he goes on to say that it's not only just envy and rivalry, but they do it out of, in verse number 17, you see, out of selfish ambition. This is a really unique word. Um, It's a word that's not really used much in Scripture. In fact, this is the only place that it's used. And it's a word that uh, from other writings of the time, we see Aristotle uses it, and he uses it to speak of politicians. And, uh, And so selfish ambition. And so Aristotle says that basically these politicians will do anything they can in order to get the result that they want. And they do so not out of the good of the people, but out of their own selfish ambition. And so the Apostle Paul uses this, being a learned man, this very specific word to say that these gospel preachers who are going out and sharing the gospel did not share it out of a good heart, but rather their interest was themselves, that they were selfish in their motivation. Now something else I want you to see in this passage, though, is the Apostle Paul does not rail against these folks. In Galatians, you've been there, right? Were these folks false teachers? We would say that they're not. Some people have speculated that these folks could not possibly be brothers who are envious and and rivalrous and who are selfish, that they must be outside of Christ. But that's not the language the Apostle Paul uses. He calls them brothers, that they have confidence in the Lord, but yet they have bad motives. So some have proposed that these might be the Judaizers and Galatians who troubled the Apostle Paul. But you'll remember the Apostle Paul did not have such a a warm understanding and a a warm relationship with the Judaizers. Uh, He says, I wish those that trouble you, church at Galatia, would go the whole way and cut themselves off, not only in the circumcision, but from the church, that they would be removed from you, that they would be anathema, cursed forever. That's not the attitude of the Apostle Paul towards these who preach enviously and rivalrously. 
The attitude towards the Apostle Paul here in verse number 18 is, so what? What does it matter? And so there's this whole segment of people who are preaching Christ and their message is absolutely spot on. We know that because if their message wasn't, the Apostle Paul would come against them. He'd say, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. But their message was right. They had the right message. It was their motivation that was wrong. And so when they see the Apostle Paul in prison, there are two contrasts here. The first group, we see that they know his imprisonment. You see that in, in verse number uh, verse number um, 14, rather, or 13. So it becomes known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak it. So he says, these folks know the reason for my imprisonment. They know that God is sovereign. They know that I am put there not out of selfish ambition, but because of the gospel of Christ, that I might defend it. And I might proclaim it even to Caesar's household. And we've seen the results of this in the end of the book, that even those in Caesar's household have come to a saving faith. And so those who are spurned to preach the gospel out of love, they do it knowing that the Apostle Paul is there for the defense of the gospel. But there was a whole other segment that really had difficulty swallowing the fact that the Apostle Paul was in chains. And I think that we have that segment among us today, right? We have a group of people that view trials as being only for those who have not enough faith or those who maybe aren't quite spiritual enough or that their trials come into their lives because of some sin. We're going through Job in Sunday school and that was the friends of Job, right? He must have done something really bad to warrant this. Like America must have done something really awful to get coronavirus, And so there was a whole segment there who believed the Apostle Paul being in chains was an embarrassment. How could the Apostle, I mean, if he really was a good guy, if he really was the Apostle to the Gentiles, if he was everything that all these other churches say he was, why in the world would God lock him up? Surely his being in chains is evidence that God is punishing this guy. And so they go out and they preach the gospel and they do it not out of goodwill, but they do it to stir up affliction. And this word affliction, as you trace it throughout the Bible, means a lot of different things. It could be affliction by sickness. It could be affliction um, by, by mental health and just being, you know, uh, being overwhelmed with depression and anxiety, grief. They wish to cause him affliction in his heart that he would be, be one who is locked away and see all of these other folks kind of gloating in their freedom out and about sharing the gospel. And they were ashamed of him because they said, surely the Apostle Paul, being as good as he thinks he is and as good as the church thinks he is, would not be locked up by Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says these folks don't know, but there's an interesting word here that says they think. This is the former, verse number 17, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking. That word means to suppose. We do a lot of supposing, right? In church, in our marriages, with our kids. You ever have a fight with somebody in your mind? Do that all the time, right? I mean, my wife and I have had conversations about conflict that's never even happened. And we'll spend a good part of our day wrestling through a conflict that's never happened and probably won't happen. What are you doing in those? You're supposing. You're thinking. You're inventing. 
And so there's a contrast here between those who know without a shadow of a doubt that God is sovereign and in the imprisonment of Paul, and it is for the advancement of the gospel, and there's a supposing on the other part that is fancifully kind of entertaining the idea that maybe the Apostle Paul is in chains because he's not what he really everybody thinks he is. And so what an awesome, awesome lesson for us as a church. We want to be tenacious together. Part of it is get knowing and stop supposing. Get knowing and stop supposing. Because you and I, we give Satan a foothold every single day to work in our minds. And we may have the right gospel message, but our motivations get mixed up because we start supposing things. And we start believing that so-and-so might be against me and -and so-and-so's motives might be wrong. And you know, I don't know if they're really everything they're cracked up to be. I think, look at him, he looks so pious up there on the stage. Oh, how Satan loves to work in our minds. Romans 12.1, the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome says what? He says that we're to be a living sacrifice by the renewing of your mind, Romans. Don't suppose. Don't let the pendulum swing the other way and do away with the authority that God has put in place. Don't think that all authority is a tyrant. Don't think all authority desires to be worshipped. Don't suppose no. And say, how do you get to know? Well, you ask. You spend time in a relationship together. Peter says to deal with your wives in an understanding way. Not supposing, but knowing. Asking. Church at Rome did not know the Apostle Paul. They didn't know his motivations. But I want you to see the Apostle Paul rejects the temptation to suppose about them. And rather, he chooses to know only about the gospel. Verse number 18, and we're done. He says this, and in the ESV, it's, it's not as emphatic. I, w- I wish it was a little more emphatically translated. He says, what then? And really, what he's saying is, what does it really matter? So he just spent this whole time talking about the advance of the gospel and how things have happened as a result of him being in prison. People are coming to a saving faith and knowledge of Jesus in the imperial guard and even in Caesar's household. Brothers are becoming more and more confident to speak the word of the Lord without fear. Some of them have good motives. Some of them have bad motives. Some of them seek to afflict the apostle Paul. And he says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. We began this message with a a saying on a shirt from a famous brand. It's mind over matter, and I don't mind because you don't matter. It's not very Christian. So I think if we're going to redeem that that saying, we might redeem it this way this morning. I think he would say that it's mind over matter. Sure, it's what you think, it's what you know. Don't suppose. And I don't mind because only the gospel matters. You want to be a church that's tenacious together. We've got to get the attitude in the heart of the Apostle Paul that says, what does it matter? So-and-so doesn't like me, what does it matter? So-and-so's talking bad about me. So-and-so doesn't believe my apostolic authority. So-and-so this, so-and-so that. We need to stop supposing and know that only one thing matters, and that's the gospel. 
And if we become a church that is absolutely sold out for the gospel, we'll have the same joy that the Apostle Paul does. Because I can tell you the joy is not to be found in supposing. Joy is like watching a scary movie. It gives us a lot of fear, gives us something to do, keeps us entertained, but it doesn't ever bring about joy. You say, what about, what if, what if it's somebody outside the church? What if it's somebody that persecutes me and says terrible things and mean things about me? And I don't ever have the, I'm never able to rejoice because I don't ever see the gospel advance. And then your confidence goes back to verse number 19, right? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. That in being persecuted for the sake of Christ, you are actually living the Christian epitome the epitome of the Christian experience, that you're on like the Mount Carmel. Tim Keller said this, suffering for Christ is the very epitome of the Christian experience. So count yourself fortunate to be considered worthy to suffer with Jesus, to be railed against, to have bad attitudes levied against you. And know this, that they're working your sanctification, that you might be more and more like Jesus. So I'm going to go ahead and we're going to close. I'm going to ask every head be bowed, every eye closed. There's some real implications for us as a church here this morning. We live in a, a trying time, a time of great opportunity with the coronavirus and all the things happening in our nation. People more than ever are concerned about death. They're concerned about their family and their loved ones, wanting to make sure that they're secure. It's an opportunity for us to to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our neighbor by sharing the good news of the gospel with them, to advance the gospel in this dark hour. It's also an opportunity for us to love our neighbors by helping meet their needs in this time. Those of us who understand that God is sovereign over coronavirus and that not a single day could be added to or taken away from our lives outside of the hand of the Father, it ought to make us emboldened to go into the face of danger. And to take on danger for for our fellow loved ones. That we might be like Jesus and consider ourselves uh, able to lay down our lives for our friends. There are many now who are gearing up to do just that in in healthcare. Just as the doctor in China who kind of blew the whistle on this whole thing ended up succumbing to the very disease he fought. So many others may be faced with the same decisions. The times we go in are, are dark times. But friends, let us not live under the shadow of coronavirus. Let us live, as Psalm 91 says, under the shadow of the Almighty. Advancing the gospel. The other consideration that we have this morning is we need more B-team members. We need the B-team to step up in our church. There is never a time, even when the Paul, Paul, if he were to be released from prison, it's a great thing, it's a glorious thing to have everybody in the church emboldened to share the good news of the gospel. We'll never, we never want to get to the place where we just have the A-team or we have a performance or we have just a select few doing the work of the ministry. Every single man, woman, boy, and girl in our church ought to be mobilized. They ought to be equipped to do the work of the ministry, that the gospel might advance here in North Central West Virginia. And if you are part of the B team or the A team and you have a part in that glorious ministry, the word for us this morning is to check our motives. Are you doing it out of an abundance of love? Or are you motivated by selfish ambition? 
Is it out of goodwill or envy and rivalry? Maybe you're here today and you do a lot of conjuring, a lot of supposing. Maybe this week your thoughts have been dominated by kind of this mental chess match of who's against you and who's for you and who's speaking ill of you. Would you reject that? Would you repent of that this morning? And would you determine as the church there at Rome to know, to know the gospel, to know the confidence of the Lord that he brings, that God is sovereign and that folks can be against you and they can despise you and and you can be discouraged, but you can also be encouraged by not supposing and knowing, by having confidence in the Lord. And church, will we get this mindset that what does it matter? And this morning as we close in prayer, as you're here in your thoughts, what does it matter? Your relationship with your wife, your relationship with your kids, your students, fellow classmates. If the gospel goes forth, if we are counted worthy to suffer as Christ, if we are being made in the image and likeness of him, what in the world does it matter? God, I pray for our church this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather together. May we have open eyes in this dark time. May we see the needs of our neighbors. May we be quick to meet them. Uh, May we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And God, for those of us in the church, we want to be tenacious together. Our desire is to keep the unity. We want Emmanuel's unity and love for one another to be known throughout the community. And we pray this morning that we would just stop supposing. We'd stop having these, these inward conflicts with each other. And we would know the confidence that comes from knowing you and that you are above all things. God, may the gospel advance as a result of our church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go ahead and we're going to stand and uh, we're going to sing the